Wine and writing. It's a beautiful pairing in my view, one I appreciate a great deal, but there can be a dark side, something our next guest knows a lot about and that she details in a fast-paced, moving, tearful, and funny memoir. Welcome to the Full Comment Podcast. My name's Brian Lilly. I'm your host. And before we get to our next guest, I want to encourage you once again to hit the subscribe button. Hit subscribe for this podcast, whatever device or app you're listening on right now, Apple, Spotify, Google, Alexa, hit subscribe and leave us a review. Share it on social media even. Help spread the word. I'll be leaving a positive review of the book we're going to be talking about for the next while. It's called Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much. It comes from Natalie uh, McLean, a woman I've interviewed many times in the past without knowing her backstory, a woman who built an enviable career and yet went through, to me and to others, unseen personal trauma in the background, and who, while still being enthusiastic about writing and wine, does have some warnings for us. Natalie, thanks for the time. Oh, so great to be back with you, Brian. Take me back to the beginning. I got to hear about you because I was hosting a a radio show on 580 CFRA in Ottawa, where you're based, um, where I used to be based, and and you were a regular in the Bell Media Building. You'd come in and you do CTV Ottawa, the the morning show, noon shows, different things. And and so if I wanted to talk to a wine expert, it was easy. Well, Natalie, and she's in town, and she knows what's at the LCBO. She knows what's at the SAQ across the river in Quebec. But this wasn't something that you trained for. How did you get into this career? Before we get into the bad stuff <laughs> and the rising up out of the ashes, how did you even get into this? So while I was working in high tech, because as you know, uh, Brian, Ottawa has a lot of uh, a very vibrant high tech community. I grew to love wine. The company I was actually working for was based in Mountain View, California. It's now the, the headquarters of Google. Google. Um, so I spent several years going back and forth and always heading up to wine country, Napa, Sonoma. But at the same time, I took the sommelier certificate program courses at Algonquin College in the evenings so I could graduate before my son was born. And uh, that's how I then became curious about wine writing. So while I was on maternity leave, I called the Canadian author of uh, many wine books And tech had taught me to be bold and call high, so why not ask advice from the most famous wine writer I could think of? And he told me, "Um, just don't expect to earn a living from it, after we had spoken for a few minutes. And he added, treat it like a weekend hobby, sweetheart. (laughs) Well, we'll get into the the sweetheart and the sexism uh, that you experienced in both high tech and wine in a bit. Sure. Um, I'm not sure I would ever call a woman that I didn't know well, sweetheart. (laughs) And if I did, it would be done in a very ironic way. Um, Yeah, I should have said, thank you, honey bunch. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's a bit of an an odd start to a conversation. But I mean, you did pretty well. And there were some incredible highs for you for for someone who didn't come from a wine background, who didn't come from a writing background. You, you, you were not a, a journalism major in university. You, you didn't train in, other than your, your evening courses at Algonquin, which is, is great. I know people have done that and done similar courses here in Toronto. Um, but, I mean, that's different than that's your passion and that's what you've trained for as a career. This did start as a hobby and then became something that you got some 
big accolades from like becoming the, I forget the title. It's a big award, the drinks writer of the year. It sounds like it straight out of Europe. Uh, that That's how they describe things over there. Sounds like a drinking competition. It was the world's best drinks journalist. It was based out of Australia. <laughs> yeah. It's a mouthful to say. Um, but you know, as a, as a child, I was obsessively competitive because I went into competitive Highland dancing and my mom took me everywhere all around Nova Scotia and over to Scotland. But then I just became com- competitively obsessed no matter what it was like coloring competitions. You know, my secret weapon was glitter glue. So of course, when I started wine writing, I thought, where's a competition? Let's enter a competition. So I just entered whatever I could. And, um, yeah, and it turns out I, I did okay, but um, that's kind of where that drive came from. It's um, e- interesting the different language. Just as, a, as an aside, I'm you know mainly a political writer, uh, in addition to the podcast. But I, uh, I I I will dabble in some travel and some food and uh, and and drinks writing, and and so I've I've gotten on some email lists, including for the the whiskey association out of Ireland and it's drinks Ireland. And when that shows up in your, you, you see that across your email inbox, it's like, what I'm going to drink the whole country. That's, yes. that's odd. <laughs> yeah. Like drink Canada so, dry. <laughs> uh, you know, as my relatives from Scotland say, that sounds like a challenge. It does. The, the hobby though did become a business. It did. So how long did that take? Well, you know, um, one, once I was off on maternity leave, I started, cold calling, pitching editors at different magazines and uh, newspapers. I, I didn't have any contacts. As you said, I didn't go to journalism school. I wasn't in the industry. My husband was in high tech. So in terms of the wine world, I was a nobody from nowhere um, who made a career out of nothing. And But tech gave me that confidence, again, to just cold call and cold call as high as I could. And so I started getting assignments like at the National Post and other magazines and, and so on. Um, and it just snowballed from there so that by the time my maternity leave was over, of course, I had never taken vacation being an A-type personality. So I had built up months of vacation time. Uh, I decided not to go back. I wanted to be at home with my son. I loved writing, never had the confidence to think I could get paid for it. Wine was a calling card. And for someone like me who is an extreme introvert and shy, it allowed me to get into people's lives and ask really nosy, almost rude questions that I would never bring up at a dinner party. So it just all fit together. And I thought, this is what I want to do. It's amazing that you describe yourself as an introvert because, um, you know, I've, I've watched you on TV. That's hard to believe. But <laughs> I also say that as someone in the business, who's been on radio, been on TV, been in print for the last 20 plus years. And um, it's not uncommon to be an introvert in this industry. It isn't. I think, you know, I use the two things to express myself that didn't require me to speak up, up until now with the TV and stuff, writing and dancing. And that was my way of creative expression because I used to get teased as a child. Has the cat got your tongue? They called me Nat the cat because I wouldn't (laughs) talk. I was so shy. And I hated that. I mean, they were trying to be fond and ribbing or whatever, but I just hated it. And so I had to find ways to express myself where I didn't have to talk. Um, Now, over time, I'm all grown up now and I've learned how to talk and speak. But that confidence came first from being an avid reader which led to the writing, the dancing performance on stage, 
and now finally, you know, um, I, I can bring these skills out, even though I remain an introvert uh, and a shy person. Before we get to the messy part of your life, which I'm sure you're looking forward to talking oh, yes. about yet again, uh, do you remember who gave you your, your first assignment? Who gave you your first break? Well, that was President's Choice Magazine at Loblaws. It's now defunct. <laughs> I, yeah, the Augusta. Um, I hope I didn't you know, plow it under myself. But at the time, they had this gorgeous food magazine. Yeah. And I was flipping through it thinking, where's the wine part of this? And I... I couldn't find anything about wine. So I pitched, the story was wine on the internet because I thought I've just finished the sommelier program. I know tech, so let's do it. That was actually a topic back then. Um, And she said, sure, but have you been published before? And I said, yes, thinking of my high school newspaper and praying she wouldn't (laughs) ask me for samples. And that went on to become a regular column until the magazine died. Um, but that too gave me confidence to reach out to other publications. I, uh, yeah, I wrote for my school newspaper as well. And, uh, and I remember the people that gave me my first breaks. That's why I asked. And mm-hmm. I, I, I noticed in the book that you, you mentioned writing for the Air Canada en route magazine. And that's one of the things that I had hoped to do one day, but those don't exist anymore. You know, I was on a flight recently looking and thinking, if you don't bring anything to read or something to watch, you're staring at the card that tells you how to evacuate for the next four hours. So. <laughs> yeah, and even the wine isn't decent. So what are you left to do? That sounds desperate. <laughs> no, no, it's not. I'm glad they chill a little bit to kill <laughs> off the taste. Um, <laughs> central theme running through your book. So I, it's about you being a wine writer. It's about your experience uh, in the industry. But a central theme running through the book, because it is a memoir, mm-hmm. is the breakup of your marriage. And the devastation that that caused and, and how you climb back up, um, probably half the people or close to half the people listening to this will have gone through divorce, as I have. It's not fun. It's not something you want to talk about. But you were married for 20 years. And from my reading of what you put down in, in Wine Witch, you just did not see this coming. No, I didn't. Um, and it sounds naive. I mean, in retrospect, you can look back and see all the little clues. But at the time, my assumption was that if you've been married for 20 years, you settled into some sort of contented companionship because we didn't have fights or, you know, that sort of thing. And 20 years is a long time to let down your guard and stop wondering, is it going to work out? Because obviously it has until it doesn't. And, you know, my, my marriage had great curb appeal. I mean, I was um, achieving some success in wine writing. He was a CEO of a high-tech company. I mean, it all just looked perfect uh, until until it doesn't. Um, so, you know, it really did hit me. I mean, it, there were several weeks of cold distance in January 2012. And I started by asking him, because he had piles of financial papers all spread out over a table, like, um, you know, have we what's wrong? You know, have we lost our retirement savings? And I had to go through 20 questions, uh, one of which was, do you have prostate cancer? I mean, that was how absolutely, you know, uh, surprised I was. I, and and my, la- well, my last question was, do you, do you want a divorce? And he said, what if I did? And I nearly, like I sat down to sit on the bed and nearly fell off. Um, you know, because I had been a a bit smug, I must say, about outlasting my mother's marriage. She was married for two years. 
you know, I was 20. She was a, a grade school teacher, had an undergraduate. I went to a fancy school, got a graduate degree and, you know, had this writing career. And so, yeah, it really just knocked me back. And I even asked my therapist, why didn't I see this divorce coming? Why? Uh, you know, I'm so naive. And she said, and my therapist is in throughout Wine Witch on Fire. So you get some free therapy with this book too. Uh, she said, you're not, <laughs> you're not naive. You're trusting and you can't imagine anyone else doing what you're not capable of doing or thinking of yourself. And it's a more optimistic way to live. So try not to, to beat yourself up too much. One of the things that I've learned through ups and downs of personal experience is that even the most picture perfect fam family from the outside though, they've got problems. Mm. It's behind closed doors. You don't see it. And we don't think of others as having problems. We look across the street and it's like, oh, they're perfect over there. Mm. We don't think that they've got the same problems. We're, we just don't know that they do. When all of this happened, I mean, you, you describe just anguish and breakdown and a loss of confidence both as a, you know, not, not just in, in relationships, which is understandable. I think you said you never wanted to trust another man again um, <laughs> as you were raising a little man. Yes. Um, but you also lost confidence as a writer, as a wine expert, as someone uh, respected in your field. Talk a bit to us about what you lost in those, those days that you had to fight to get back. Hmm. Yeah, well, all of the things you've just said, Brian, I mean, extreme failure made me face something I never want to return to. Um, at the same time, it also gave me a taste of a full life I never want to lose. So, you know, when that angry mob online shoved me up against the wall, I had to ask myself, am I really this person? Am I who they say I am? And, you know, I think the answer is yes, no, and something more. And so this experience shook loose yeah, my confidence in my writing ability, in uh, me as a person. I mean, you know, these are pretty strong accusations. And I had to question everything. Oh, we we haven't true. even gotten into the accusation. Right, right. Yeah, we'll get into oh, that yeah. in a second. But, Absolutely. But I mean, per, per, personally with the, yeah. how, how did it hit you professionally and personally that this truck coming down the road <sighs> and hitting you, if your husband yes. saying, I want a divorce. Yeah. Um, it, you know, so, so much of what we are, what we do, we, you can wrap yourself up in, um, in your professional life, but there's also a great deal of our identity that's wrapped up in our, our personal life, yes. who our family is, who, who we're married to, whether we're single, whether we have a extended family, mothers, brothers, all of that. So mm -hmm. how did that hit you? Well, I felt I failed the wife test. Um, I felt naive. I felt ashamed. Um, a whole range of emotions just, it kind of boils you down to, who am I if I'm not so-and-so's wife? And, you know, why couldn't I keep the marriage together? I, I thought of myself as an intelligent person, you know, couldn't have we worked this out as professionals, as, you know, intelligent people who could go to therapy and work it out and you know, I tried that. Um, and on the third session, our marriage counselor just turned to me again out of the blue, it seemed to me, and said, you need a lawyer. And, and you wrote that that hurt because you thought he was supposed to be on your side. Yes. Yeah. And, and per perhaps in telling you that you need a lawyer, he actually was. 
yeah, he was. I, I, it felt like a slap, but in in the end, it was the, the boot I needed to to move on. And even though it was so hard to move on mentally because I was still stuck in, we can work it out. Um, I had to get on with my life or, or what I had left of it and take control. You know, I was a control freak. I had to take control of the tiny little piece of my relationship that I could still control. And that was our separation agreement, which would lead to the divorce finalization, that document. Um, that's what was left to me to, to be able to do or to whatever. Uh, and, and to keep my son first and foremost, I had a 14 year old, we had a 14 year old son. And, um, that was really important to me that our breakup have the least impact possible on him that we could manage by staying amicable and working things out. I mean, just, you know, breaking up a marriage, especially one of 20 years is like a, can feel like a corporate divestiture when you're talking about, you know, a house and a car or two and everything that you own, everything represents something. Somebody gave this as a gift at Christmas. I took this on vacation with us. Like, uh, anyway, it's, it's everything has an emotional import attached to it. And then children is just another level. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he was 14. So raging hormones, teenagerdom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Throw that into the mix. Why not? Um, But he weathered it remarkably well. And then sometimes when he weathered it well, I thought, is he just keeping this all inside and one day it's all going to explode? So you just never know. And, and, and at the same time I had my elderly mother who then was 71 and depended on me financially, as did my son. So my world was rocked right to the core, to the foundation with this. So this is January 2012 that you you find out from your husband. Obviously, it takes months to get to the point where the divorce is actually happening. But in less than a year, you also face a professional attack as well. Mm -hmm. Claims that you are... I don't know how you would describe it. Uh, mm-hmm. Shortchanging other writers. Some people claimed plagiarism. Some people said you were de- like those are devastating mm-hmm. claims in the writing world that can end careers. Absolutely, absolutely. So, it, 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 and your description of that mm-hmm. early on in the book, I, the opening of the book, I, uh, you know, first couple of chapters, I'm thinking, how does she survive? <laughs> Um, Guess I must have though. I wrote the book, but yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and it's a dec. It's more than a decade later. So congratulations yeah. on that. But what were the accusations against you? Sure. And at, and then tell me about how you you mentioned later on in the book. This was my first mistake. This was my second. This was my third. Let me count all um, the ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, yeah. You're kind of like plucking the the petals off a daisy as you just went. Well, here's how I screwed up on this one, and this is how it led to that. So the professional attack hit you out of nowhere, and then you go back and you look and you say, "Okay, some of this is on me, even if it's unfair in mm-hmm. how it's being characterized." Absolutely. Yeah. So it was just before. So the the divorce discussion was in January of 2012. Then I my terrible vintage was bookended with. Um, at the end of 2012, it was just before Christmas, and I was checking my email one last time before heading up to bed, um, and my family had already gone to sleep. So a Google alert popped up with the headline, 
Natalie McLean, world's best wine writer or content thief. And my heart started pounding and then it just dropped into my stomach and the the text was blurring and merging together and I was thinking, what the hell? And I clicked through to a large American wine and spirits website and there was a long rant article with phrases that felt like they were burning into my retinas. And this wasn't simply a nasty post, Brian. I was being accused of the one thing a writer dreads most. So doctors lose their license for malpractice. Lawyers get disbarred for misrepresentation. Writers get their careers canceled for copyright issues. And I should clarify, the accusation was not about plagiarism, but rather about fair use in quoting another review to provide more context about a wine, something like Rotten Tomatoes does for a movie. And many people get these concepts confused, but there is a huge difference. So I was the first to comment on the blog post and I explained that I was already changing the way I quoted other reviews, as this wasn't something that was noted in the post, nor did they contact me to ask about it, though they did contact a wide range of other wine writers for comment. So I naively thought this would answer their concerns and that would be that. Oh, so wrong again. Uh, Their accusation ignited the debate online, but the bonfire really escalated when the trolls started focusing their attack on me as a woman. And it devolved into taking my body apart piece by piece in public. That spread to other websites and newspapers around the world. And some then said and still say, well, just ignore it. But when you earn most of your living online, You can no more turn it off than a surgeon can operate outside the hospital. And in hindsight, I wonder, you know, should I have even posted a response? And I think the answer is yes and no. Again, I answered their concerns. However, doing so added fuel to the fire. And I posted once more before I realized I could not say anything that would appease them. And so the frenzy just carried on. Yeah, what what I've learned is that there are people you should respond to. (laughs) And people that you shouldn't. There are trolls who it doesn't matter what they're going to say. And there are people that you can have reasoned conversation with. Um, and uh, sometimes it's tough to tell them apart. But so what were you doing that, as I say, later in the book, you describe, you know, mistake one, mistake two, <laughs> mistake three. Uh-huh. What did you start doing on your website that led to this? This Rotten Tomatoes type thing Mm -hmm. where you were posting other people's reviews, you felt you were crediting them, others felt you were stealing work. Mm -hmm. So another Google alert a year earlier had popped up in my inbox, and it was for one of my own wine reviews, but it was posted on another wine website. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Because this website had approached me to be part of their site, one of their many critics, and I had declined. I had polite conversations with this site, but in the end had said no. And I, so I started, I looked at their site and I realized they were quoting many of my reviews. And I thought, well, where is this? Why? And then they were, they were also quoting a lot of other writers' reviews that did not belong to their website. And then I realized, now I see what they're doing because I, I recognize the reviews. They were coming. They were being reposted from the LCBO, the Liquor Commission of Ontario, um, the LCBO's website. So that's 
as we all know, the government-owned liquor store chain here in Ontario, and they post reviews. One of the biggest buyers of booze in the world. Exactly. Very powerful. You're you're, you're not going to be overly upset if they're quoting you. No, exactly. So I thought, and here's where my mistakes start to pile up. I thought, first of all, oh, it's already on the internet. It must be in the public domain. Wrong. (laughs) Wish I had gone to journalism school, but totally wrong. Um, It's on the government website. So that must also reinforce that it's free and open, you know, to quote or use. Wrong again. Other wine sites are quoting reviews, not just the one I mentioned. So it must be fine. Wrong again. Um, So anyway, I started doing it being a glass kind of half full person rather than glass half empty. And I thought, I'm not going to ask this site to take down my reviews. I'm just going to do what they're doing because it, it totally makes sense. Like Rotten Tomatoes, this was the heyday of aggregation back then, Huffington Post, content aggregators. So I thought, well, it makes sense to provide more context to each wine than just my review. So I'll do the same. Ah, So anyway, um, so this went on for a while. And um, then finally, uh, another writer contacted me because what I was doing was also um, the way I had set up my site from the beginning was I had a directory because there was so much information about each wine from the alcohol level to drink by dates and all kinds of stuff. And so I had a directory where I had used a lot of acronyms like ABV, uh, alcohol by volume, all kinds of stuff that my readers were familiar with. And so with these quoted reviews, I was also using acronyms the way the LCBO did in certain publications, print and online, like RP would be Robert Parker. And all of this was in my directory, which I linked to. But this was what... um the writer contacted me about, about doing this. So I at first said, leave it with me. Um, you know, being the editor of my site, I will handle this, <laughs> not realizing that, you know, this could cause issues. Um, even though subsequently I got legal advice and what I was doing was well within fair use. Anyway, so this escalated. He uh, then emailed I think there was 31 editors and writers around the world, wine writers and editors about this. Um, I was already in the process of fixing the reviews the way he had requested. Um, But then this American blog post chose to write about it. And that's where the pylon started because then there was a central repository of where everyone could comment. And and so you're, you're dealing with, your divorce or you're trying to put that behind you, you're trying to move on. And then you've got this professional attack on top of that. Um, Natalie, uh, this seems like an appropriate point to take a break because when we come back, I want to shift to a couple of things. One, how you were able to piece everything back together, Humpty Dumpty style, Uh, but also uh, your warnings, because you've got some interesting warnings about the way that wine is marketed towards women, especially mommy wine. Yes. Oh my goodness, mommy yeah. wine. Lots of uh, And I want to talk to you about that when we come back. There's a sign that sits in my office um, given to me by my sister that says, write drunk, edit sober. Now, taking at face value might imply writers are all booze hounds and Yeah, there's some truth in that, but it's actually a philosophical view about writing. 
but there's also a dark side to this business. And um, that's what I want to ask you about right now, Natalie. Uh, you experienced that dark side of the business. Um, being a wine writer, people would say, that must that that sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. At one point, you described sampling twenty seven different BC red blends in a day. Mm-hmm. You're obviously spitting it out, or at least most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it. But you obviously also, when you as you write about your 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 trouble with drinking too much at a certain point, as you're going through all this personal trauma, uh, you must have realized, hey, wait a minute. So how do you go from being the epitome of what women are supposed to want today to realizing I'm indulging too much? Uh, well, I, yeah, I had easy access, as do all wine writers, um, to alcohol. You know, bottles sat on my Free desk. Free alcohol. Free alcohol, yes. <laughs> Though no one's sending us Domaine Romani Conti, the coveted Pinot Noir from Burgundy. We <laughs> tend to get kind of mass commercial wines, but... In any case, um, bottles sat on my desk to the left and right of my computer. They filled the gaps in my bookshelves. In the back of the kitchen was a hallway that I called Tasting Alley. And, you know, where there were hundreds of bottles on counters and cupboards and 3,000 more were under my feet in the basement. And they still are today. Cases of wine arrived, uh, you know, every week. Um, unopened boxes sat at the front door. So, I was surrounded by wine and I lived in what an enophile would consider paradise. But the challenge is that, well, for me personally, this year, that, that terrible vintage, while I never felt I had a drinking problem until then, I started using wine as a crutch because it was just, you know, one emotional devastation after another. And I found it particularly challenging making it through what I call the arsenic hour around 5 p.m. when there's a natural dip in your serotonin. And that's the hormone that stabilizes our mood and our sense of well-being. Plus, I had no commute to separate home and work. I mean, I worked from home. Um, So it was very challenging to convince myself slowly through a lot of therapy that chemical relaxation wasn't Natalie relaxation. I had to catch myself and think, what was the thought? What was the thought before the thought, I need a glass of wine? And was it a crutch to reduce stress? Or was it about the enjoyment and pleasure of wine? And if it was about the first one, I had to, over time, discover new ways to deal with that and not through wine. Like go for a walk, have a bath, watch a favorite show. And um you know, it's it's something we don't talk about in in our industry a lot in in the wine world because there's it's drinking is either viewed as a professional duty or there's shame in admitting you have a problem. Then you're not serious. Um, but the U.S. yeah, the U.S. statistics show that the hospitality industry has the highest rate of substance abuse among all professions and hospitality includes wineries and restaurants. So it is an issue. We're just not talking about it much. And so, and when you'd be out at tasting events, mm-hmm. you know, there's the spittoon that everyone uses and you're supposed to use. And, you know, I don't write about wine, so I don't use it. I drink the wine, but you know, I'm guessing if you're doing a professional event and you're tasting wine after wine, after wine, you'd use that, but then you're out at events at night. Mm-hmm. If, if you're on the road and, you're sitting around having dinner with colleagues. 
you, you're drinking the wine. Yeah. You're sitting at home at 5 p.m. You're drinking the mm-hmm. wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've got this um, mantle of professional respectability uh, in the way that no other drug is socially sanctioned. Um, can't imagine, you know, sitting around even having a joint. <laughs> not the way wine is. Wine is sophisticated and you're supposed to drink. And in fact, if you show up with friends, with some friends and you're not drinking as a woman, they wonder, are you pregnant? Are you sick? Do you have a problem? Is it religious? Because why wouldn't you have a glass of wine? But, you know, I, I just think that in the industry, we have to talk about this more. And I used to use my drinking habits and wink, wink, nod, nod about overindulging as kind of slapstick humor. My first book was red, white, and drunk all over. The second was unquenchable. But now I hope that they will fuel a discussion for overdrinking. And I'm, I'm not here to be a downer. I still drink wine. I still love it. But I really had to examine the way I was using wine in an unhealthy way to get back to that that ideal that once drew me to wine, the pleasure of it, the companionship over a glass of wine with someone else. I had to get back to those things that once drew me to it in the first place. The, the pleasure as opposed to the need. Exactly. The, the aesthetic, not the anesthetic, if you will. <laughs> I like, I like All that. All kinds of bumper stickers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, now, earlier on, I said you were the epitome of what women want today. And I chose those words on purpose because women like wine, that's true. Men like wine a lot. But there's a lot of marketing aimed at women today when it comes to wine. And sometimes I look at it and I think that's funny. Sometimes I look at it and I think, oh, come on. We, you know, we, women are more than just wine uh, hounds. I, you know, it's. It seems over the top, especially mommy wine culture. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're you're now critical of that. Why? Well, you know, I think the message on some bottle labels is that women belong to a particular category. So we're either vixens, drawn to brands like Little Black Dress or Stiletto. You know, labels feature short dresses, high heels, red lips, or we're exhausted mothers buying wines like Mommy Juice and Mommy's Time Out to obliviate motherhood. Um, and if we're, if we're not babes, we're battle axes, you know, with labels like mad housewife. Um, and the marketing message I think is that rem- women need to have a reason to drink, whether it's girls night out, a fancy occasion, or just getting through another day of exhaustion. And it's, I think there's a line called girls night out, isn't there? Yep. There's a label called girls night out. Um, and it's implied we need permission to drink as we do to buy other things. Um, there's even a wine for sneaky shopping called White Lie, and little lines are stamped on the corks like, this old thing, or I got it on sale. You know, whereas conversely, I find wine is often marketed to men as sophisticated and artisanal. No one asks a man why he wants a drink. He has one because he wants one, usually. And I have to say, Brian, I was not a bystander in this labeling game. I was team captain. So in my magazine articles, I would describe my glass of wine at 5 p.m. as mommy's little helper. It's how I marketed wine to myself. It's how I fit in with the other wine moms. And it sounded lighthearted, but it has the bitter edge of resentment. And by the time, you know, I hit the end of the day, I was exhausted and no one was helping mommy. So mommy helped herself 
to another drink. And, you know, I laughed off these narratives, but, you know, eventually those jokes fall flat and wine labels targeting women like this, um, I think profit from powerlessness. So that is why I'm talking about that kind of marketing now. You return to the topic of sexism several times in your book, both in the wine industry and in high tech. Um, I, I gulped as I read your description of being at a high tech conference event. I think it was in California with mm-hmm. people playing the uh, um, basically body shots mm-hmm. um, were going on uh, and how you felt at that, because I can, I can just imagine how you're in a high pressure sales and marketing position dealing with that. But what you just described is also something that I think isn't talked about. And it's that some of the sexism that you're describing when it comes to wine, uh, the the sexist messaging comes from women. Mm -hmm. It, It comes from women either pushing it for a sale or to justify why they feel they need to have another drink. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a, a weird situation. You, you've been subject to an awful lot of sexism. You detail that in the book and yet have taken part in it as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As that's I say, got, that's <laughs> got to be an odd thing to wrap your head around. It is. It is. But, you know, as I say, I was team captain. I was playing off all those memes and jokes. It was my shtick. And, you know, I have to take responsibility for that, my part in many of these things, many of these issues. And, you know, I, t- I talked about, you know, women in the wine industry as though it was a big breakthrough to have women winemakers when, you know, very few of them own their own wineries. Many were experiencing and still experience workplace sexual harassment. I mean, my, my culpability in those narratives has become clear to me now, but back then I, I couldn't see that either. You know, it is hard to read a label from inside the bottle. That's an interesting description. <laughs> How did you, um, in terms of the consumption issue, how did you stay a wine writer, stay someone that drinks wine, and deal with the fact that you were overindulging without joining AA and saying, well, I'm, I'm going to go sober and I'll, I'll either find something new to do or I'll just write about wine from a theoretical point of view. Right. Well, I asked my therapist that. I said, should I quit? Um, and she said, well, I think that would be punitive. Although I, I have to add immediately, it is the right thing for some people to do, to quit. It was the right thing for my father, who was an alcoholic and had devastating impact on my family. But I explored that through many sessions with my therapist. You know, do I quit or do I try to develop techniques to pull back? And, you know, as we explored it, for me, fortunately, I don't know if that's the right word, my overdrinking was situational. It was in response to a pretty traumatic year. And as I resolved those underlying issues and healed from them, the need for the wine also diminished. Um, but you know, it took, it took a lot of work and it's not for everybody. And, but that, that 
that's how I moved through it. Was therapy what got you through your your bad vintage, your 2012 <laughs> year, and and helped you climb back out? Because you've you've definitely climbed back from that horrible vintage. Yeah, therapy definitely was right up there, but along with the support of my family. So, you know, my mother, my son, my new partner. At first, I didn't want to tell any of them what was going on online. You know, I was in a new relationship and I, you know, we're, it was the sort of honeymoon fairy tale part of it. And I thought, oh my God, what do I say? Welcome to my online world of hate. Um, so well, I that's my daily uh, existence. So <laughs> sometimes in the online world, that. that that's, that's reality. It is, People will it? hate you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I kept it all bottled inside, um, thinking strength and independence for these people who depend on me is keeping it in and dealing with it myself, or maybe only through my therapist. But, you know, and, and so for, it was a full week that I didn't tell them what was going on online. And it was only when I had a rape threat on Twitter that I finally just broke down and I thought, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I have to, I have to talk to them. And I was terrified um, of what my new partner would say. Would he just say, uh, you know, I'm not going near this, this dumpster fire. But he was supportive, thank God. My mother was understanding. And although I didn't go into the level of detail that we're talking about now with my son, because he was just 14, I did tell him, you know, there's something going on online. I'm, you know, I'm dealing with it. Um, fortunately he just was not interested back then in social media. It was still pretty new anyway. And so he wasn't getting like Google alerts himself about me, but you know, I had to let them in. And then I had to let friends in friends who thought, you know, I had the perfect life and profession and you would have thought I learned from, you know, my marriage breaking down to, to share, but, um, I didn't, but once I did, Brian, I could not believe the stories that came back to me. Other people started sharing their stories of private shame. And it's what's happening now with the book and early readers of the book. I am getting so many messages back that are just, they give me goosebumps. I, I can't remember the the name of the author that you you cited on why you would share information like this. Yeah. Um, what? But it, it was that someone out there has a wound that looks like what you've dealt with already. Exactly. So there were two authors. First was um, memoirist Glennon Doyle, who wrote Untamed and a lot of other books. And she said, don't write from an open wound, write from a scar. So in other yes. words, do the healing first, do the work. <laughs> and then my next thought was, well, why even write about this? You know, vandalizing my own privacy, for goodness sakes. Um, but the poet Sean Doherty said, you know, why bother? Because someone out there right now has a wound in the exact shape of your words. And so words were my sutures to stitch two, two parts of my life that I thought were entirely separate, two open sides, but they were the sides of the same wound. And the, the, the pattern they make was stronger and more meaningful to me than 
the flesh was before the wound. And it's those patterns and reflections in the book that other people are resonating with now. So they may not have gone through a divorce, although statistically 50% have, but Mm -hmm. you know, they've, I'm sure most people have felt the longing for love, the fear of rejection. People may not have been attacked by an online mob, but they felt, you know, career disappointment or, you know, wondering about their goals in life or who they are. And so what a good memoir does is allow you to feel all those feelings, but through somebody else's story and, and learn how they walked through the flames and came out on the other side, you know, stronger and fiercer. And, and you've built back and mm. you've discovered that, yes, you can trust men again. <laughs> yes, I can. And um, it's, it, it was a shift in perspective because there have been many good, good men in my life, from my son to my grandfather, who really acted as my father, um, to my partner today. You know, there's been many men who've disappointed me, but that's life. Like we all have people, men and women and others, um, who are there for us and those who disappoint us. And it's those who lift me up now. I'm focused on them. I'm focused on them in my personal life, in my professional life. Um, and it's just, again, a shift of orientation. It's like when you go to the optometrist and you get the eye vision shift and everything's blurry. And then with one click of the lens, you see clearly how you want your life to be. I want to spend the last couple of minutes talking about the type of wine writer you are, because one of the reasons that I've appreciated you over the years, Natalie, is that um, you're an approachable wine writer, and I am not a wine specialist. Uh, I've actually got a friend who in his spare time did the sommelier course himself. But I tell him straight up, you're a wine snob. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, he's introduced me to some great stuff. But at the same time, I... he approaches wine far differently than I do. And you approach things from um, where the average person might be sitting and what will you enjoy. So I want to ask you a few questions about your wine writing. Um, by the way, you've also got a website. You've got an app um, that, uh, that people can use for reviews and tracking things. You've got all of that. But you don't write bad wine reviews, or at least you didn't. Has that changed? And, and if not, why don't you write bad wine reviews? Well, I used to think, well, you know, I've got to point out all the the, the poor wines in the world. But um, I, you know, I recommend so many good and great wines that I don't feel the need of to provide my readers a long list of wines they should remember not to buy. You know, call it wine of the week, like with an H. I just, I think wine is about attracting good energy, celebrating the pleasures in life. I've never claimed to be a critic like Robert Parker is, or even a, you know, a um, consumer investigator. I leave that to other people. I like to talk about the stories behind wines. And for me, that's what makes wine memorable. And so that's the focus in my wine or in my, my reviews and my wine writing. And in fact, I, you know, I was a writing snob, not a wine snob at the beginning of my career. I didn't want to do wine reviews for the first three years. 
all of these publications for which I write, I, I wrote, I would try to convince them just to let me do long form narrative, not wine reviews. Cause I thought wine reviews are like reporting on house fires. You know, that might be where you start, but you know, if you really want to byline big time, you'll go to the op-ed page. But I realized that wine reviews are also a great service to people. And I had not only disrespected my own reviews and their value, but others as well. And that's part of taking responsibility for what happened. Um, so, uh, you know, my approach, it's always first person, it's conversational. It's, I have to write the way I talk, like we're talking at the kitchen table. I don't know and, and any other way. <laughs> you, you mentioned Robert Parker. He's someone that writes um, a newsletter called The Wine Advocate. Mm -hmm. He's the type of person you'd go to if you've got a cellar that you want to fill, right? Sure, sure. He's backed off of uh, wine reviewing. I think he's maybe retired, but yes, his um, publication exists today. Many other writers um but, but I mean, that's, yeah, sure. you're reviewing wines that I'm going to drink tonight or exactly. this weekend. Exactly. Um, someone like a, a Robert Parker is, or before he retired, was someone that, well, I, you know, I want to fill my, my cellar with wines that will, you know, uh, be at their peak in 10 years, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that, that's not you. And I, that's part of what I appreciated about you. No, oh, thanks. Um, and your writing over the years. Uh, how do you find the balance between clickbait hmm. and speaking to your audience, giving them what they want? Because it, it's a fine line and, and you talk about that. And, and in the online world, which everybody in the media is in right now, if you're not meeting what Google wants, hmm. you're not showing up in people's searches. You're not showing up in their news feeds. You're not, sh you, you, you don't get the traffic that you would. How do you find that line between what you call in the book clickbait, or I, I think uh, giving the next um, uh, food pellet. Yeah, become and Google's content rat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, where, where's the line for you? Well, you know, at first, you know, I pushed myself harder and harder to create search engine friendly content, but it didn't tap into my deepest creative self. That was something else I moved away from, you know. So just there was two parallel things going on. Like I first loved wine just for the century pleasure. And then it became more, 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 more and a way of dealing with things. Writing, when I first did it, was just for the pleasure of the words and the joy of putting together a good article. But then it became more, more, more. Let's get more people, more eyeballs um, you know, doing things like 16 wines based on your Myers-Briggs personality profile. Let's pair them up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it certainly got the clicks, but it didn't really, it didn't really tap into my deepest creative self. Now there's always a business need to generate traffic to your website, but I think you have to keep it in balance with what gives you joy. And, you know, that's why that's part of why I wrote this book. I mean, one was to make sense of what happened, but another was to get back to that long form narrative that I just love. It's not efficient. It doesn't pay well. It hardly pays at all, but it's something that puts me into that joyous flow state of, of doing the best thing that I'm called to do, the best contribution I can make while I'm still here on this planet. And, you know, I, I, I always now have to keep that in mind, you know, stay in your place of joy. 
I, um, I have built my career doing daily journalism. And um, in daily journalism, you don't have the option to procrastinate because mm-hmm. there is a deadline every 15 minutes. And, and as I've mentored people, as I've taught people, and they've said to me, well, how can you write so quickly? It takes me so long. And I, I will tell them, well, you're trying to be too perfect. And you, you have a saying that shows up in the book that I'll, I'll end with this. I want, I want you to speak about this. You say perfectionism is a form of procrastination. That's a luxury I've never had. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me what you mean by that, because for writers and aspiring writers listening, um, it, it might give them some insight into why they can't finish something. Mm-hmm. Well, I think perfectionism and competitiveness coil together like a cobra and a boa constrictor. So the first bites you with envy because you're not what what you want to be or you're comparing yourself to somebody else. The second squeezes the joy of life out of you. And to me, they're the undisciplined pursuit of more. So, you know, more glitter glue, more wine, more content clicks. But I think now, I think it's the struggle that counts. And um, I've had to, kind of almost treat myself as looking back at my younger self and saying, hey, younger you, you were trying the best you could at the time. Relax. I've got you. Um, and, And relax now today as you don't need to be perfect. And in fact, I think it's, it's in our flossomeness our flawed tendencies, our vulnerability that we connect with others. No one can connect with anyone who's perfect. You know, it's just, it's unreal. It's unlikable. But we sure as heck can see each other or ourselves in another person's imperfections. And, you know, I I used to think, well, I have to develop a tougher skin or a thicker skin. Um, But I'll, I'll take what Philip Roth, the novelist, said when asked if he had developed a thicker skin, he said, no. He said, every year my thin, my skin becomes thinner and thinner until if you hold me up to the light, you can see through me. And I want to stay, I want my skin to stay thin, thin as possible, like a Pinot Noir, my favorite grape, <laughs> because it's only <laughs> through that transparency and that vulnerability that love can come into you. And yeah, you're vulnerable to all kinds of other crap, but... It's better than keeping everything out. Natalie, thanks for the time of the conversation and thanks for your book. Oh, thank you, Brian. I I really appreciate the time you've taken to chat about this and to let me share this with your listeners. And if they are interested, I have set up winewitchonfire.com where they can find the juicy bonuses that I put (laughs) together for those who buy the book, including I will send you signed book plates as well as some private online tastings. And then winewitchonfire.com forward slash guide is a guide for book clubs and readers who want to get more from the book. All right. Thanks so much. Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation, and Drinking Too Much is coming out from Dunder and Press on May 9th. My name's Brian Lilly. Uh, this has been Full Comment for this week. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. This episode was produced by Andre Crew with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Again, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music. 
You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices, and you can help us out by giving us a rating, leaving a review, and telling your friends about us. Be nice. Tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.